Well, our sermon text this morning is Psalm 34, and I will ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Psalm 34. Give ear to the reading of God's Word. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, And delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning. We thank you that just as the rain that we see this morning comes down and makes everything bear fruit, that your word, even this morning, will not return void, but it will accomplish that for which you sent it, We ask this morning humbly that you would work in us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 34, uh, this is one of those details that you can't really pick up on uh, in in our English translations. But in the Hebrew, it's, it's an acrostic. And an acrostic... If you've never heard of that term, it's each line in the psalm, each verse really, starts with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. How many verses are in Psalm 34? There are 22. There's a little bit of a hitch to it. One of the letters uh, is actually not, uh, it's, it's omitted. And what they do is they skip one of the Hebrew letters. And then at the very end, the last verse, they repeat one of the other ones uh, I can't begin to tell you why that is. Uh, there must have been a reason for it, but 
Um, I don't know what the reason for that is. But you can imagine one of the, some of the reasons for having an acrostic might be for memorization. You know, it's like as if you were going to make one of these in the English, verse 1 would start with a word that starts with the letter A, and verse 2, letter B, and so on. You can see how that might be a useful teaching tool, uh, even for, for children. You know, uh, part of the psalm actually says, uh, down in verse 11, Come, O children, David says, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It's very possible that this might have been one of those teaching tools even for young children to help them memorize a psalm like this and prepare them to teach them the fear of the Lord, to teach them how to seek refuge in the Lord throughout their many afflictions that the faithful and the righteous go through even in this life. Uh, In this beautiful psalm of David, uh, David praises the Lord for delivering him and for delivering all of the righteous who take refuge in him. David says in verse 8, He calls all of us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, For while the afflictions of the righteous, verse 10 tells us, or 19 tells us, are many, what's the message of the psalm? That's kind of the message of the psalm. The afflictions of the righteous are many. But what happens? What does the Lord do? He delivers us out of or from them all. You might know that the New Testament, which we'll look at, during our sermon this morning, actually quotes this psalm twice. It may seem like an obscure psalm to us if we're not familiar with it. It doesn't roll off the tongue, maybe like Psalm 23 or even 22 and others uh, does. Uh, But it's it's quoted by the New Testament writers at least twice, once in John 19. And what is John 19? That's where Christ is crucified. That's the account of the crucifixion of Christ. And you might know in that text that the soldiers, what were they told to do, to break the legs of the men who were being crucified, to speed it up. They didn't want the bodies to be there over the Sabbath. Uh, And yet, when they came to Christ, what happened? He was already dead. They did not break his bones. And so, John tells us, as we're going to see later on, uh, that he quotes Psalm thirty-four twenty, where it says, he keeps or guards, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. That was a fulfillment of prophecy in the psalm. Uh, during the crucifixion of Christ. So Psalm 34, very literally, is prophetic of the cross of Christ. The gospel is in Psalm 34. Not only that, but 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. There, Peter quotes verses 12 to 14 of our psalm at length. And what is Peter's purpose there? He's exhorting us as God's people to keep on doing good and to be willing to suffer for the sake of of righteousness. You know, in, in a sense, you could say that's the theme of Psalm 34. And so Peter isn't just haphazardly grabbing at verses. He, he picks that one for a very good reason. It fits exactly with what he was saying there in 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning we're going to look at at least three things from the psalm. We're going to look at first the context of Psalm 34 that's given to us in that superscription above verse 1. So the context of Psalm 34, the confidence, the confidence of Psalm 34. What is David's reason for blessing the Lord at all times? That's his confidence and his reason for confidence. And the last thing we're going to see is the cross in Psalm 34. So the first thing is the context of Psalm 34. David writes of that context there in the superscription above verse 1. It says of David, this is part of the biblical text, 
of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. There's a little bit of a play on words here that, again, it's not very obvious, but what the phrase there, he changed his behavior. The word behavior, it's, it's from the same root that we get the word taste from, and taste and see that the Lord is good. It has the idea of perception or taste or behavior. Now, what's that referring to? What is, what is David referring to here when he talks about Abimelech? It's the account back in 1 Samuel chapter 21 uh, that you may be familiar with. 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 to 15. It says this. And <laughs> our son's a lion. Uh, that's all right. He just wants to make the tape, right? Uh, it says uh, 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15. Uh, and so it begins. Uh, and David rose and uh, fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the, of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. In other words, he's been found out. He thought he could come here and hide. Why that is, I don't know. Uh, he brought... Uh, Goliath's sword with him to the king of the Philistines. I don't know why he thought that would work. Um, but uh, he took it to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior, same phrase, before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? You want me to take him home? You know, why, why did you, do, I, do I have a lack? Do I have a uh, burning need for a madman? Um, you know, now, the first thing you might have noticed when I was reading that, that there's a change in the name. In our superscription, what's the name? Abimelech. In 1 Samuel 21, it's Achish. You know, there's a number of, of things, another of, a number of options to, to try to figure out, you know, how do you, what do you do with that? Do you say, well, maybe it's talking about something. Maybe David did it twice. Maybe there was some other guy named Abimelech, uh, and David changed his behavior. Hey, it worked once, right? Why not try it again? Maybe David had a habit. That was his go-to. You know, nobody messes with a crazy person, right? So act crazy. Scratch on the door, drool on your beard. Um, that, that's an option. I don't think it's the right option. Um, was David confused? Is this one of those places where the scripture might be a little, uh, a little askew? Did David get it wrong when he wrote? Now think about this. I don't know about you. Um, have you ever had a life, uh, a near-death experience? I'm going to guess that if you have, you remember it. You're not fuzzy on the details. You're not fuzzy on the one person who is a threat to your life. Who was the one that David was afraid of in that text? Achish. He, he took the words to heart and he was greatly afraid, uh, he greatly, greatly afraid of Achish. It's very doubtful that David would be fuzzy on that detail. I might not remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but if someone's about to kill me, I know their name. Uh, I know who, who it is. That's not very likely. Most commentators say that the name Abimelech uh, is, is probably most likely a title and not a proper name. 
Abimelech is Hebrew for uh, my father is king. And so this, this may be referring to, to succession of kings from one generation to the next. So it's very likely that that was a title and not a proper name. Abimelech is actually found in the book of Genesis. It's someone that Abraham had uh, to do with as well. So it's, it's not the only time you'll see that name here in the psalm and elsewhere as well. So uh, that's probably what, what, the way we are to understand it, that it's, this was a title for Achish, the king of Gath. Uh, Abimelech was his uh, title, much like Caesar. How many Caesars were there? They, many of them used the title uh, as well. It wasn't just one. Well, Achish was the king of Gath. And what was he as the king of Gath? He was the leader of the Philistines. Now, who were the Philistines? If you know your Old Testament, if you know the story of David in particular, that was enemy number one of the people of Israel in David's day. David himself had quite a history with the Philistines, starting with uh, his fight against, against their champion Goliath, the giant. Uh, and in 1 Samuel 21.9, right before this, we're told that David didn't have a sword so he went, and when, what sword did he find? Which sword did he procure and take along with him to Gath? Of all the things he could have taken along, he was given Goliath's sword. Nothing like uh, blending into the crowd with a weapon that everybody would recognize. It must have been rather, rather large. Uh, not only that, but he had been waging war against the Philistines not long before he fled to Gath. It wasn't like, you know, ten years ago. A long, long time ago, nobody would remember this. David was fighting against the Philistines. Uh, in fact, right before, in, our, in the text anyway, right before Saul tried to kill David, which is why he was fleeing, he had warred against the Philistines. 1 Samuel 19, verses 9 to 10 says, And there was, a war, uh, there was war again, and David went out and, and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. They knew who David was. They had very good reason to know who David was. So if, if the Philistines were enemy number one, public enemy number one for the Israelites, David was public enemy number one to the Philistines. He wasn't an unknown person. Remember that in that text that we just read, the Philistines themselves, the servants of King Achish, they even knew the song. They knew the lyrics to the top hit of David's uh, song about his killing and striking down his ten thousands. Word got around. The song got around. They knew that the people of Israel sang and danced, it even says, about, about David's exploits. They knew who David, who David was. So for David to flee to Gath of, of Philistia, of all the places David could have picked, how much in fear for his life must David have been at the hands of Saul. He, what did he do? I mean, did he pick Gath by accident? Probably not. It doesn't say David thought to himself X, Y, and Z. He probably picked the one place he knew they'd never think to look. The one, now, he probably should never gone there. It probably wasn't the greatest idea in the world, but they never would, nobody in Israel would have thought, I know where we'll go. Let's go to Gath. Let's go check out... Let's go knock on King Achish's door. Hey, have you seen the guy who kills all your soldiers? We'd like to have him back. You know, he looks like this. Here's a poster. You know, didn't uh, didn't work quite that way. Now, um, one of my many faults is I find humor in things that maybe shouldn't be humorous. And this is one of those texts in 1 Samuel 21 uh, that I, I've always seemed to get a kick out of. 
um, shows my mentality, but this, the whole phrase there, do I lack madmen? Uh, you know, to me, I get a chuckle out of that. Uh, in, David, in the actual situation, there was nothing funny about it. I think God has a sense of humor for sure, but uh, in, in this particular case, you know, we might look at our own country's political situation and think that that, that sentence applies uh, more than we would like for it to, to apply, but um, but in David's case, it was a scary thing. David feigned being crazy just to try to save his neck. That's what he was what he was doing. Also, interestingly, in that phrase there in verse 15 of 1 Samuel 21, when he says, "Do I lack do I lack madmen?" It's the same Hebrew word that that David uses, or the root of the same word, in Psalm 34, verse 10, when he says, "Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing." Just a little irony there. Well. As humorous as Achish's words may sound to me, uh, right or wrong, there wasn't anything funny about David's situation that he faced there with, with King Achish, was there? You know, every, everywhere he went, think about this, I mean, there was nowhere he could go. No matter where David went, someone wanted to kill him. They didn't just dislike him. Everywhere he went, if he, wasn't back, if he was back home, Saul had everyone trying to get David and kill him. It seems like the only person that was sticking up for David was Jonathan, Saul's son, who, who cared for him and sought to protect him. But he went out of there, went to Gath, and it was no better. His life was in danger every single place he went. It's what's the old saying about jumping out of a frying pan. That's what David just did. David jumped out of the frying pan right into the fire. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in a situation where you just had no idea how the Lord was going to get you out of it, or if he would. You don't see any light at the end of the tunnel, and what's the old stereotype about it being the, the light of a front oncoming train? You know, uh, that, That's David's situation here, here in the uh, context of Psalm 34. But if you've been through something like that, and gotten through it, and the Lord has delivered you from that, you can see why David is, is exhorting us all to praise the way he does. He lived to tell the tale, and he lived to sing this psalm and teach it to us. That's why in verses 1 through 3 that we read for our call to worship, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, when he says, I will bless the Lord at all times, times there has the idea of seasons. He's not just saying, you know, every time of every day kind of thing, although it certainly includes that. He's saying, in all kinds of situations, even in life-threatening situations, he has reason to bless the Lord and will bless the Lord and give him praise. His praise should continually be in his mouth. He could bless the Lord even in time of great trial and affliction. That's the message of, of Psalm 34, that... You know, the the, uh, thing that that Rob mentioned about his friend uh, couldn't have been picked with a better context for our sermon text than than it was. That's why it's much like what Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 4, when he says, Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Always. In all circumstances. At all times. If you are in Jesus Christ by faith, you always have ample cause to, for rejoicing in the Lord, even in time of great affliction, whatever that may be. That's the message of Psalm 34, or a big part.
of it. David would have you and I to know that such deliverance and praise are not just for the king. David's message here in Psalm 34 isn't, you know, uh, well, you know, I'm the king, so I got special privileges. What What does he call himself? This what? This poor man cried out, and God heard him. And the whole point that he gives in the rest of the psalm is that the Lord is attentive. He hears the cries of the righteous. His eyes are upon his people. They're toward his people and his ears are attentive to, their, to our cries. He knew the suffering and affliction were not just a lot of him as the king, but also of all the godly. That's why he penned the psalm. When he says, let the humble hear and be glad, the word for humble there has the idea of somebody who's been brought low. It has the idea of somebody who's, who is suffering affliction. He's not just saying, let somebody who has a low self-esteem No, he's saying someone who's going through something like what I did in some way, shape, or form. David wants his situation and the Lord's deliverance from him, uh, from it, and through it to be an encouragement to you and to I when we are afflicted. And so what's the larger context? That superscription gives us the, the specific context of what happened in David's life. What's the larger context? Affliction. Suffering affliction of of God's people, not just David himself. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, Scripture does not flatter us like the storybooks with the idea that goodness will secure us from trouble. On the contrary, we are again and again warned to expect tribulation while we are in the body or in this body. The Bible is not some fairy tale book that promises no problems in this life, no affliction, no danger, Quite, quite the opposite. It doesn't flatter us that way, he says, that if we're good little boys and girls, our lives will be easy. If that were the promise of Scripture, a lot of us would have given up a long time ago, and with good reason. The Scriptures do not promise us a trouble-free life, do they? No. God does not exempt his redeemed from trial or affliction. He certainly didn't exempt David from that, and he certainly didn't exempt, as we're going to see his own son, from affliction and trial. The gospel of Christ doesn't offer us health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. It does not promise that despite what you might see from your television so-called preachers. If it did those things, who wouldn't be a Christian? Who wouldn't go for that? Many people do fall for that. Oh, Jesus died to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And yet the mortality rate on this earth is still 100% not counting two people that were in the Old Testament, right? The, Bible, the gospel is not health, wealth, and prosperity, certainly not in this life anyway. But what's the confidence that leads to that point? The confidence of Psalm 34. David's confidence was in the Lord, was in the Lord's goodness, his faithfulness in delivering his people. At least four times in the psalm, by my count, David writes that of the Lord delivering his people, quote, from all of their fears, verse 4, all of their troubles, verse 16 and, or 6 and 17, and from all their afflictions, verse 19. Now, he doesn't say he spares us from all those things, does he? That's not what David is saying. He, he's not saying that God spares his people from all fears or from all troubles or from all affliction. He sees us through those things. He lets those things not have rule over us or not conquer us in the end. The psalm 
is full of allusions to the Old Testament, different stories from the Old Testament and the history of redemption. In verse 5, he says, those who look to him are what? They're radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, it's not the same words that was used back then, but you know, David's face probably didn't seem all that radiant when he was drooling spit down his beard in front of King Achish. But even then, the Lord, the Lord delivered him, and he was radiant. And his face being radiant kind of brings to mind someone else's face, doesn't it? In your Old Testament, Moses, the second time he was bringing the tablets down uh, from the Lord, the Ten Commandments, what happened to his face? He was talking to God face to face, and when he came down the mountain, his face was glowing. It's as if the Shekinah glory of the Lord kind of rubbed off. There was an afterglow on Moses' face, and it was so bright that people were afraid of him. They made him cover it up. Well, it's, it's the same kind of an idea, I think, not a literal shining of the face. But I think that's, that's kind of what, uh, what David is alluding to here. Those who look to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him for salvation are very much like Moses in that sense. We are, despite our afflictions, radiant. We'll never be put to shame because our trust in the Lord will never prove to be in vain. He also says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Doesn't that come kind of call to our minds? It does for me. Second Kings chapter 6, years after David's day for sure. David wasn't referring to it. When the king of Syria had surrounded the city of the prophet Elisha with an army, it says, verse 15, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. It looked like Elisha Elisha and everyone with him were doomed, didn't it? Their enemies decided they had had enough of Elisha knowing all their secrets and frustrating all their plans. What did Elisha tell his servant? Remember the servant came to him and said, you've got to get up. You've got to look outside. We're, We're in big trouble. We're surrounded. Look, the whole city is in trouble, not just his house. And what did he say? What did Elisha say to him? He said, do not be afraid. Why? For those who are with us are what? More than those who are with them. Now, if I, if I had been there, and if I was that poor, frightened servant, I probably would have rubbed my eyes, looked out the window again, and said, nope, don't see it. You know, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Uh, are they camouflaged? You know, are they uh, concealed? Uh, and then what did Elijah do? Elisha prayed to the Lord and asked that God might open his eyes. And it says in verse 17 there, So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It doesn't say, all of a sudden the Lord sent angels and chariots of fire. It says he opened the eyes of the, of the young man so he could see it. It was already there, the angel of the Lord was encamped around Elisha and around his city. The reality, even if unseen, was that Elisha, uh, well, it was not Elisha who was outnumbered, was it? It sure looked that way. And to us, it often looks that way. But it's not that way. The Assyrian army was the one, they were the ones who were outnumbered. They were the ones who didn't stand a fighting chance. Sometimes we have to see with the eyes of faith 
which scripture helps us to do to see how things really are. How often does the Lord Jesus Christ defend and spare us, his church and his people, through the work of his angels, and yet you and I are completely unaware of that fact? How often do we pray about some situation that we're facing, whatever it might be, and these unseen servants of the Lord are there to work our deliverance and protect and defend us? We may never know, uh, but you who fear the Lord can be sure that you are watched over and protected on every side. Nothing comes to you except through God's permission and through his hand. Notice that David did not chalk up his deliverance to his own ingenuity or his own acting skills and acting crazy. That's what we would do. That's what I would do. That was pretty smart of me to act all crazy. I even, you like the, the drool part? You know, boy, I really got him good. I was scratching on the doors. It was great. No. Who did David ascribe his deliverance to entirely? The Lord. The Lord and the Lord alone. It was the Lord alone who deserved and warranted the, all the praise and the glory. And that brings us to the last thing in our psalm, the cross in Psalm 34. Now, the last thing that we see here, at least in, a, in the sermon this morning, is certainly the most important thing in the psalm. Without it, the psalm really doesn't do much for us. Now, the cross might be the very last thing you expected to see in Psalm 34, if you weren't already familiar with John chapter 19 and what it says there. But, uh, but how could it not be? How could a psalm about the affliction and suffering and, and, and threat of death of God's people not include the cross? How could it not? How could God's deliverance of his people from those things not deal with the cross? Look at verses 19 to 22 there. David writes, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, you know, you could take that if you didn't have your New Testament informing you. You could probably take that as simply describing the extent of God's protection over his people. Kind of taking some artistic license in some ways, you know. Uh, he delivers us from all of our many afflictions, and he does so to such an extent that he guards even our bones from being broken. You know, it's, it's like that old line, it's, everything's just a flesh wound. Nothing, nothing lasting, right? Nothing that, that's... Uh, Beyond that, nothing that requires more than a few stitches or a band-aid. Nothing that you'll see beyond a scar or two. Nothing that uh, damages. But what does verse 20 really talk about? Whose bones does verse 20 refer to? Not mine. Not yours. Primarily Jesus Christ's bones. His bones. None of them were broken. John 19, 31-37 explains it for us. It says, since it was the day of, the, of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews, being the nice guys they were there, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. They wanted them to die faster, right? So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, with, with Christ. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side 
with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, quote, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That is why you and I, and it's the only real reason why you and I can be sure that any of us who have taken refuge in the Lord, that none of those who do that will be condemned. Why? Because as verse 20 says, he has redeemed the life of his servants. How did he redeem it? On the cross, which Psalm 34 points forward to years and years and years and years and years in advance, just like other Psalms do as well. You and I are delivered in Christ from all of our fears, troubles, and afflictions only in Christ and nowhere else. And only that because he endured the cross in our place for our sins. It's no wonder then that David says in verse 8 there, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who has taken refuge in him. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Are you taking refuge in him alone by faith and not in anything else? If you look to him, you too will be radiant. No matter what trials or afflictions, real trials and affliction that may come your way, For nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 39. Even death itself. What's a bigger affliction than death? Even death itself cannot truly harm you if you're in Christ. Why? Death has lost its sting if you're in Christ. What what can death do to you? Romans 8 says not even death. Nothing else in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What does death do to a believer? Does it harm the believer in any way? Really? At the end of the day? No. If you're in Christ, all death does is usher you right into the presence of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your glory and your joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your scripture is honest. We thank you that it deals with uh, the way things really are, that it uh, doesn't paint a picture that, uh, that fails to live up to way, the way things really are in our experience and the experience of those we love, even those who you love in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world. We thank you also that David penned this psalm, that we could be encouraged by his example and know uh, that, that we taste and see that you are good and that the man who takes refuge in you is the blessed man. Thank you that we can rejoice in all seasons, in all times. We can bless you at all times because nothing, nothing in all of creation, nothing unseen or seen, not even death itself, can possibly separate us from the love, from your love for us that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you for this. We ask this morning that if, if anyone here today does not yet know you, and has not yet sought refuge in you, that you might open their eyes even today, that they might taste and see that you are good and take refuge in you, and also so be radiant. Uh, We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.